Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. A tragedy has been unfolding in the streets of San Francisco, our region, and the nation. Roughly 100,000 people are dying from drug overdoses every 12 months across the country. In San Francisco alone, 1,300 people have died from drug overdoses in the last two years. The overdose rate has about tripled just since 2017, largely due to deaths from fentanyl. In response, some San Francisco politicians are moving away from the harm reduction policies that have defined the city's response to drugs for years and talking about new abstinence-based programs. In the era of fentanyl, it's clear the current system isn't working, but is a return to other responses actually going to work better? That's all next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Right now, San Francisco supervisors are contemplating a different type of drug treatment program in the city. It's based on people getting clean and transitional housing before they're slotted into permanent supportive housing. As Kevin Fagan of the San Francisco Chronicle reported, it's a turn away from the harm reduction posture that the city has been known for. And that's generating controversy among some public health experts who say the evidence does not support a move away from harm reduction, even if those programs have not succeeded in preventing the fentanyl overdose crisis. Here to talk about the desperate situation and the desperate measure some think we need to take, we're first joined by Asha Safai. San Francisco Board of Supervisors represents District 11, which includes the Excelsior and Ingleside neighborhoods. Welcome, Supervisor. Thank you. Thank you for having me this morning. Yeah. So what would you like to see change in the way the city deals with drug addiction? I mean, listen, last year we had over 700 deaths. This year we're already on pace. We're in the hundreds. I mean, this is a crisis of historic proportions. And what we pushed for last year in the midst of all that was we listened to the communities that have been impacted the hardest by drug addiction Um, And what they were asking for, predominantly African-American, Latino, black and brown community leaders and organizations said, we're not given the option of abstinence-based treatment. We want to be in an environment that's drug-free. When we're around people that are using drugs, even if those drugs are designed to help people get off of drugs, it's a trigger. And this city has moved away dramatically from offering abstinence-based. Think 12 steps, thinks Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, Delancey Street uh, is one program that continues to offer, but it's not city funded. 
So we pushed in the budget last year uh, in partnership with adult probation. We were able to convince the mayor's office to support us. And in that, it's called a treatment recovery and prevention, a therapeutic community environment that is completely abstinence-based. It's, it's an alternative sentencing program because so many of the people that are caught up in our criminal justice system are that are repeat offenders have addictions and underlying addictions. So we wanted to bring these forces together and provide a safe, clean environment led by a Black-led nonprofit, former drug addicts themselves that have turned their lives around called uh, Positive Directions Equals Change. We work with Steve Adami and the leadership over at Adult Probation. And we've been able to create spots for almost 90 individuals, about 60 beds. Uh, we have the building there right in the Union Square, Tenderloin area, and it's working. And it's an option. It doesn't mean that we're trying to remove a harm reduction, but we don't have many options for abstinence based in the city at all. Besides so, the go ahead. Go ahead. Supervisor fight, you know, the reason that people moved away from these abstinence based programs is that public health evidence suggests that harm reduction works better, right? And there's a finite amount of dollars to go around. And so the reason it seems to have come to dominate this this particular strategy, harm reduction has come to dominate San Francisco, is that it was seen as the most you know effective way of dealing with these problems. Well, I, I would say when we're what we're seeing play out on the streets of San Francisco, the dramatic amount of overdoses, the dra- dramatic amount of of drug use that's happening in this city, I don't think anyone would say that we're that we're being successful. Mm-hmm. And I think in this environment, I think it, it compels us. In fact, we we should we feel obligated to look at options. And and again, this is not something that I would say is intended to be a an or. It's intended to be an and. Let's give people other options. And it's proven. I mean, I know Vitka is going to be on here from Health Right 360. I have a lot of respect for the work that they do. She's an example of somebody. She will tell you herself. She went through an abstinence-based program and turned her life around. Um, Gary McCoy, I think it was a blend of the two that works with Health Right 360. Uh, he also is someone that benefited from abstinence and also harm reduction. I think the two can coincide. I think they can be successful, but we've gotten so far away from offering abstinence-based treatment that there's a lot of people out there that are asking for it. This is what the uh, many in the addictive community, particularly brown, brown and black communities are asking for. And I think we need to listen. Supervisor Safai, thank you so much. You represent District 11, which includes uh, the Excelsior and Ingleside neighborhoods. Um, I wanna wanna let you go and uh, just thank you again for uh, for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, Alexis. Uh, I really appreciate the conversation. I appreciate highlighting this as an important uh, conversation in the city right now. Thanks so much. And you know, you just mentioned her, so I want to bring in Vitka Eisen, uh, President and CEO of Healthright. 360, that is San Francisco's largest drug treatment provider. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alexis. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to the conversation today. Yeah. So, you know, you were just uh, listening to the supervisor talk about your own story. Uh, I wanted to give you a chance to, to reflect on that for us before we get into sort of more policy based uh, prescriptions. Sure thing. So, I am a former injection heroin user, um, I used uh, drugs in San Francisco. Uh, I ended up 
you know, my, my path into treatment was through Haight-Ashbury Free Clinics, which was actually a harm reduction provider before there was, uh, before, they, before the, the, the term was coined. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a, like a very low threshold welcoming uh, heroin detox program. You could go through the detox and, you know, if you didn't make it through the detox or if you came back in two months, nobody ever made you feel ashamed, like you had failed. Uh, and eventually I sought um, other treatment. I uh, like I needed more help. I had built a trusting relationship with the counselors and the staff at Haight-Ashbury Free Clinics. I said, what should I do? Uh, they sent me, you said, you should try this place, Walden House, which is an abstinence-based treatment program. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I trusted the folks at Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, I went to Walden House and I haven't, mm-hmm. used, I haven't used drugs since. And so that's like 35 years ago. Mm-hmm. And both of those programs are publicly funded and they're actually the programs that today make up, they're a part of Health Right 360, which is the organization I now lead. Yeah. So you've not only lived these last 35 years in which harm reduction has kind of come to the fore in San Francisco, but you've also been a part of, you know, really administering these uh, programs as well. Can you give us sort of the brief backgrounder on sort of the the rise of of harm reduction in the city and what it really, when we say that, you know, we have that that category of treatment, what do we really mean? I think I'm really glad you asked that question because I think part of the, the, um, the debate in San Francisco around harm reduction versus abstinence doesn't really make sense to those of us who've been working in the field for so long, but, you know, because it's uh, these these operate on a continuum, if you will. Um, and like, what is the note? There are differing notions of what constitutes abstinence based treatment and what constitutes harm reduction treatment. So I, I'm glad we're going to have a chance to talk about that mm-hmm. some more. But I really talked as a perspective of a person who's operated a treatment organization that has evolved outside of the policy that the, the department set based mm-hmm. on the experience of working with people who use drugs uh, and, and recognizing some of the challenges that the program faced. Even when I was a client 35 years ago, I came in a program and I, um, you know, and when I was in orientation in the program, the orientation counselor said, you know, like, can look to the left of you, look to the right, right of you, only if one of you is going to make through the program. And I remember thinking, wow, aren't we all supposed to make it through the program? And so that turned out somewhat true. You know, I mean, the picture in my office and I look at uh, all the people I was in orientation with and I think, you know, I don't know how many people actually, you know, ended up at the end of the day when I completed the treatment program two years later, how many made it through with me? And that was a problem to me then, and it's a problem to me now. Mm-hmm. And so in space treatment program, as I became a person who ran treatment programs, I had to ask why, you know, what we do is pretty good, but we still lose about half of our clients. And so, and what do I mean by lose? Well, they walk out or they have a return to drug use. Mm-hmm. And so if you have what I think some people are referring to as an abstinence only program, what happens to the people who have a return to the very symptom for which they came to you? What happens when a person returns to using drugs? What is an abstinence-based program called upon to do? And I think that's the question you face because what happens is programs ask people to leave the very time when they're needed the most. So people who are using drugs while they're in treatment are people who are needing our help and our support. And in this day and age with the toxic drug supply, if you ask somebody to leave treatment for the very reason they came to you, you risk their death. So I think this is a deep 
moral conversation we have to have about our obligation to the people we serve and preventing their death. The deaths in the street are just so tragic. There's been so many. And I and I think the big question, you know, and the supervisor alluded to it, to, are we in a different time, a different era now than we were even a few years ago because so many people are dying because of fentanyl? Uh, we are in a different era. Uh, so there is a the, – the, the reason so many people are dying from fentanyl, from the fentanyl analogs, is because we have a toxic drug supply. Um, and that drug supply is causing is causing accidental poisonings and death, um, and so that is why we need really emergency responses to that. I'll also say, having been in this work for so long, like the world has changed around who we serve in treatment and what their needs are. So when I talk about my experience in treatment 35 years ago, most of the people I was in treatment with had been like in and out of jail perhaps, but hadn't really done hard prison time, hadn't been to state prison. Most of the people had been maybe periodically homeless, but not homeless for years on end. Most of the people had actually held jobs. They were like waitresses and secretaries and carpenters and uh, longshoremen and, and uh, you know teachers' aides, various kinds of jobs at some point. Um, and you could get housing. And so, you know, 25 years later, uh, when we uh, instituted as a state mandatory minimum sentencing and began to over, over hyper, you know, drugs have always been criminalized. The drug war has been around a long time. But when we began to hyper criminalize, now we traumatize black and brown communities and destroy generations of people by sending people to prison. So what you have, what you ended up having happen is you have people who are sicker from the circumstances mm -hmm. around no housing, incarceration, toxic drug supply. That's what we're looking at today. Yeah. We're talking about the future of drug treatment in San Francisco with Vitka Eisen, president and CEO of HealthRight360, San Francisco's largest drug treatment provider. And we'd love to hear from you. What questions do you have about drug treatment programs in San Francisco? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the future of drug treatment in San Francisco with Vitka Eisen, president and CEO of HealthRight360, San Francisco's largest drug treatment provider. And we do want to hear from you. Have you had experience with drug treatment, either harm reduction or an abstinence-based approach? Give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's KQED Forum. 
or the email is forum at kqed.org. We want to add Keith Humphreys, a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford School of Medicine, into the conversation. Welcome, Keith. Hi, happy to be here. So, Keith, as I understand it, you have a somewhat heterodox position uh, in the public health field relative to the efficacy of harm reduction programs. Is that fair to say? I, I, I'm not sure. Um, you know, um, it's a very tribal field. And so there's a lot of uh, debates, I think, that are um, uh, when you get down to details, you find people agree more than they do. I mean, I worked for President Obama. We put a lot of money into naloxone, a classic harm reduction tactic. I'm delighted that it's more and more available. Uh, you know, needle exchange is terrific for reducing um, uh, the creation of uh, and transmission of infection. Uh, like hepatitis C and HIV. And so that's all really good. I think where I may differ um, is uh, thinking that we also need to create space for the abstinence-oriented pathways and honor that more than we have in in San Francisco and and in some other West Coast cities. Um, We, um, a colleague and I at Harvard, John Kelly, did a major review, for example, of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is something that many people denigrate or think of as a hokey thing. And looking at randomized clinical trials, we found it was actually as good as the things I was trained to do in terms of getting people into recovery. And uh, I think that's that has been dismissed a bit in the debate about San Francisco, and, and it really shouldn't be. Um, it's not that we should stop at all trying to save people who are dying of overdose. It's absolutely important. But as with COVID, we can't just work on the principle of we just need to start with people who are very, very ill and do our best to save them at the very last stage. We also have to reduce the number of people who are in that state. And the only way that happens is by getting more people into stable recovery so that they aren't overdosing all the time. And I think we need to emphasize that more in how we think about the system of care for San Francisco. You know, We're going to need a lot of different things. And I think it's just a question of getting the balance right. I mean, what evidence do we have that abstinence-based approaches for drugs like fentanyl work? Yeah, that's a really good question. It also depends like what is abstinence? So, you know, I, I think Vitka said something really important is for some people, it means, you know, being tough, you know, kicking people out of care and things like that, which it really doesn't have to mean, uh, you know, abstinence care, you know, for example, you know, Betty Ford Center, Hazelden, which are famous places, uh, have the goal of getting every person to a state of uh, not using any illicit substances. They also provide a range of medications to get people there, and they try to keep people into treatment. Um, many people do, in fact, arrive in an abstinent state, whether it's through the fellowships or through treatment. Um, there are clearly risks uh, in an era of fentanyl of people uh, relapsing because the, the the drugs are so deadly. But I just point out, you know, For example, one of the worst drug problems we have in the city is methamphetamine. Mm -hmm. There is no FDA approved medication for methamphetamine. Another serious problem is cocaine addiction. There is no FDA approved medication for cocaine addiction. So sometimes when people say, oh, we we can't do that because they won't get medications, just remember, we don't have them for two of the most destructive drugs Mm -hmm. we have. I chaired a commission, Stanford and, and the Lancet on the opioid crisis. We thought every single person should be offered all the FDA approved medications for opioids, things like uh, uh, methadone and buprenorphine and naltrexone. But we also were aware that many patients do not want to take them. Many patients take them for a couple of months and then stop taking them. 
And so you have to have something else unless we're going to force everybody to take these medications. You have to meet people where they are. And that includes then giving pathways, other pathways through the care system that will get them to a state of recovery. You know, is it harm reduction in our particular moment, you know, with so many people dying? Is it harm reduction that's really failing or is it that we haven't actually implemented or administered harm reduction in a way that would work more effectively to keep people from dying of these particular drugs, given the toxic drug supply that Bitka mentioned? So let's be fair to everybody, all the good people who are working hard on this epidemic. COVID has been terrible. Um, you know, we, we have a 30% increase, over 30% increase in overdoses all over the country. So some of this is no matter what we're doing, this was going to be very, very challenging. And we can't blame anyone on the front lines for that. Um, you know, it, it is it is certainly the case that harm reduction has a, a place in reducing overdoses. And, you know, things like fentanyl testing, things like uh, uh, um, uh, naloxone and so on, as I mentioned. But whether if, if it's the only response, we, we will never get out of the situation. I mean, if the sole goal is to keep people alive only, then the group of people who are addicted keeps growing and growing and growing and our resources get overwhelmed. And I don't think a satisfactory answer to the terrible situation we have in San Francisco is we just need to double down. We're, you know, Because that to me reminds me of the war on drugs when police would say we have 10 strike forces and drugs are all over the city. So that proves we need 20 strike forces mm. where, where the failure means that you should do what you're doing even more. I think it's a time to reflect humbly on we're doing a lot of good things, but something is clearly not working. And it's not just a question of amping it up even more, but rethinking what it is we're, we're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Vitka, can you respond to uh, some of those points? Yes. Um, first of all, I think, I think that uh, in principle, that Keith and I would both agree that the conversation around medication-assisted treatment, medication for addiction treatment, really shouldn't be part of this, is it abstinent or is it harm reduction mm -hmm. dialogue? That medication for addiction treatment, medication for opioid use disorder and alcohol use disorder, um, they're just, they're medicines. They're medicines that people take that help many people in recovery. Some people choose not to take their medicines, um, but others take medicine and they are FDA approved and they are considered, they're in study after study after study, best practice in terms of offering for people, offering people who have opioid use disorder, particularly given the kind of the toxicity of the drugs, the opioid drug supply. So you get stuck in this conversation that- Well, Vicky, how come it's a flashpoint then? I'm, cu I'm curious. Have you two agree, and it seems like I'm, I've heard other agreement and read other agreement getting ready for this show. How come this is a flashpoint then? I really don't, I actually don't understand it. This was like a settled uh, conversation. I, I thought this was a settled argument that there was such a strong research base that supports, um, you know, whether that, that supports people taking medicine if they so, so choose. I mean, we, it, you know, there's like, there's definitely a lot of stigma around it. So for example, if a person has hypertension, they have high blood pressure, and we all know there may be lifestyle things that they can do that can improve their high blood pressure. Um, and so they may or may not do those things. Their doctor's going to prescribe that they take an antihypertensive. Now, an antihypertensive medication it's a, it's a harm reduction intervention in that sense, right? And your doctor doesn't say, I'm going to take you off of this because you haven't gotten on a bicycle and we really think mm -hmm. you should go on long walks. And yet that's how we think about this, these medication that we get for addiction. 
Um, so I, I really shouldn't, I think that medication shouldn't even be in a conversation about abstinence or not. Hmm. Uh, I, it, can I it, add to that? I, I agree. I agree with what Vika said completely. Yeah. And this is a really deeply stigmatized condition. And all of us who work on it are stigmatized as a result. And I think that actually drives a lot of fighting. I mean, a sense of being diminished and disrespected is very commonly in addiction field. We circle the wagons and then we fire the guns inward. So unlike in the rest of medicine, like, you know, if I, like I've referred patients to AA and some say, okay, that makes you now an abstentionist. Now you must fight the harm reductionist. Well, I've also done all I can to get naloxone out there. Am I now a harm reductionist? And now I'm in another tribe and I need to fight the abstentionist. You don't see that in medicine. You know, so doctor, one patient I, I can cure, the next patient I can help some, but I can't cure, but I can at least make their life better. They don't get into these kind of fights. And I, I don't think you can separate the tendency of the field to do that from the fact that we're all working uh, in a deeply stigmatized area. I mean, as part of the reason for that, Vitka, and you're, you're really in the direct provision of services, part of the reason for that, that these are budgetary battles in some way, right? I, um, you know, like Supervisor Sfai's proposal, do you support that proposal to, you know, bring in other types of programs into the city? So I support proposals that bring in all types of evidence-based uh, and community-defined practices. Having a treatment program, per se, that is licensed by the state of California that does not allow medication is actually in conflict with state regulations. All residential treatment programs have to be licensed by the state. And the state definitively requires that medication not be prohibited. And in fact, the Department of Healthcare Services went to great effort to make sure that providers, they did training down to the frontline provider level, really extensive training that did a whole public relations campaign that, you know, medication for addiction treatment is just medicine. And it doesn't have anything to do with whether you're an abstinence-based program or a harm reduction program. Mm -hmm. And in fact, most treatment programs today have, you know, to some degree, abstinence as their goal. But when you talk about really meeting the client where they are, that for some people, that that is not necessarily, you know, they'll go to something different. I, I was giving a tour of one of our programs one time, the board member greeted, greeted at the door by a, a, a former client who said, uh, hey, I'm a graduate of this program. I volunteer here. I say, hey, you know, how you doing? He says, I'm doing really great. I don't drink anymore and I don't use meth and I have my cannabis card. And it really helps me settle down. And you know, am I going to say that that's a bad outcome for this guy? Heck no. Like his life is so much more organized and it's so much more like there's so much less chaos in his life that for him, that's a good outcome. For others, they can't be around any drugs. We strongly, there's no... There isn't this great divide, at least from like the, the on the ground treatment level. There should not be, as Keith said, there really doesn't need to be this great divide between, oh, we're abstinent, oh, we're harm reduction. Our program, you know, the programs that we operate have always encouraged people to participate in 12-step programs because they, you know, they provide a new social network that so many people need. Having some sense of connection and social connection with other people who've shared your struggle is really important for people. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, like Keith, I strive not to have, you know, I, 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 I feel like our work is about building bridges and saying, we're going to try to figure out what, what works for all of us. But I don't think reverting to policies of the 1980s, uh, where medications were prohibited in programs, I don't think that returning to that, particularly when the risk is people dying, uh, I don't think that that's good policy. So we all agree that there is sort of an un 
unprecedented crisis at, at this moment, at least in terms of overdose deaths. Um, and I wanted to ask you, Vidka, what is, if we need a radical change, which it seems like that is kind of the demand both from the community, it's also just seems like the moral demand of our, of our time, then, then what would you do to, to, to try to radically change what's happening on the street? So I would radically, uh, I would increase the opportunities for really low barrier services, including supervised drugs consumption services. I would put them in multiple locations so that we would prevent people from dying from drugs. There's a, you know, if, if, everyone, if everyone were housed, uh, that would be amazing. There were no people who were without homes, but it wouldn't necessarily reduce the number of people who are dying mm-hmm. of drug overdoses because of the toxic drug supply. So if you have, if you're really concerned, focusing, laser focused on preventing death, you want to make sure, first and foremost, you, you prevent death. And by doing that, you engage people either in syringe service programs or in overdose prevention centers or in supervised consumption services. You build relationships with people, you build connections and link them to care. You link them directly into treatment, directly into detox. You connect them with medication-assisted treatment. You you have to really think outside the box. We opened a dental clinic uh, because we realized that some people don't come in. It's part of our whole continuum of care. And we have a whole addiction medicine program. Some people will only come in for care because they have a toothache. And those dental providers are trained in doing uh, street um, brief interventions and connections to care. And so you really have to think like extremely creatively about this. Uh, in Canada and in other parts of Europe, they also have safe supply programs. So if you want to, to um, reduce the amount of, of, of uh, open air drug markets and you want to reduce the, tr- the toxic drug supply, then you make sure that programs offer a higher grade, a pharmaceutical grade of opioid uh, medication for people. And it keeps them from using a toxic drug supply. And it also reduces the reliance on a, um, you know, kind of under, underground or open air illicit drug market. Mm-hmm. So I really think it's, it takes a number of things of thinking out, like, let's not do all the stuff, reserve what we've done in the past that we know is effective. But let's be like, let's do radical things to prevent death because we're facing such an incredible crisis. So I think just to to summarize there, safer injection sites, better links to care when people come in for, for anything and, and, and better links into treatment and uh, safer supply. Um, uh, Keith Humphreys, is that uh, the same prescription that you would have or would you add or subtract to, to that list? Yeah, so I, I, part of what I think people in San Francisco are reacting to is not just the drug use, but the disorder um, and uh, around, you know, neighborhoods like in the Tenderloin. And that is not just some, you know, bourgeois concern. If you, you know, I was watching a a mom trying to walk her kid down the the street to school and had to walk, she had to walk in the middle of the street around traffic because all the sidewalks were full of people either dealing or using drugs. And we do have to do something to take care of those people who, who live there, who don't use drugs, but are really damaged by it. And that's about policing. Um, you know, if you know, we should adopt the model used in Portugal, which is to close down open air drug markets. It's a harm reduction approach to policing. There is no illusion behind it that you will eliminate drug use. It will still be there, but you don't need to have guys on the corner potentially with a a gun in their belt, um, frightening people and and 
making you know older residents freighting them out, making people scared to walk their kids around. And to do that, you need a partnership between the police and the health services community. The health services community provides low threshold services for users. We do not want to arrest users. That's a stupid thing to do. But there's quite a few people involved in the drug trade who are not users, who are just there you know, for economic reasons. The reasons open air drug markets exist is it allows sellers and buyers to find each other really fast. Other cities around the world in Europe and in the United States have been able to close those down. And we should be doing that. And that would dramatically improve the quality of life uh, for people in the tenderloin. It would not get rid of drug problems. Again, that's not the point. There's no fantasies about that. Um, but you know, there are plenty of neighborhoods in this world that have lots of drug use, lots of drug dealing, but no disorder and violence. They're called suburbs. Vitka, do you think that that kind of policing model that Keith is describing could work in a place like the Tenderloin? I think there's, I think there's a lot of challenges with uh, a police response um, to to drug use, um, and I, I, you know, and I, I, I think there's no one, no one who who lives in or walks through the Tenderloin thinks that things should stay exactly as they are. That it is a place of of uh, of lots of uh, challenges, of lots of crisis. It's it's also an amazing place. It's full of kind of vibrant communities and lots of kids. Um, so I think that no one is satisfied with what that the conditions in the Tenderloin are. I I, I am reluctant to use police as a response because I think, as I said before, we criminalized a whole bunch of people. We sent them to prison, um, and that resulted in like generational harm, particularly to black and brown communities. I want to, I, I, I want to just, I don't think Vic and I disagree on this. I don't want to use the police for drug use. I'm talking about open air dealing, violence and disorder, and there, which the treatment system cannot get rid of. I have no interest at all in putting anyone into a cage for using drugs. That's a terrible thing to do. We're talking about the future of drug treatment in San Francisco with Keith Humphreys, professor of psychiatry and behavioral science at Stanford School of Medicine, and Vitka Eisen, president and CEO of HealthRight 360, San Francisco's largest drug treatment provider. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're going to get to your calls and comments after the break. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the future of drug treatment in San Francisco with Vitka Eisen, president and CEO of HealthRight360, San Francisco's largest drug treatment provider, as well as Keith Humphreys, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford School of Medicine. I've had your comments and calls coming in. want to get to uh, some comments, and then we're going to take uh, some calls. Sarah tweets, abstinence and harm reduction are not in opposition. It is a continuum. It is not a zero-sum game, and we do not need to pit these programs against each other. We can, should, have it all. Let's fund evidence-based solutions and increase treatment options now. James writes, wouldn't making possession of opioids while homeless a crime help save lives? I understand that the drug war created problems, but once you're homeless, the next step down is the grave. Isn't jail and forced detox better than overdose death? James, I think uh, Vitka has probably addressed that a couple times already, why that's been... Uh, an unsuccessful way of dealing with these problems. Laura tweets, It is a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act to refuse to admit people on methadone or suboxone to a treatment program. The state won't license a program as a treatment facility if it refuses to access if it refuses access to people on methadone. That's because medication-assisted treatment improves health outcomes. Last one, Daniel writes, I am one of the San Franciscans most impacted. Drugs and drug addicts have stolen my city from me. We have seen no successes in the 50 years that I have lived here. More and more drug addicts and deaths. I might have cared about drug addicts at one point, but no one I know cares about them anymore. They're a nuisance and a drain on my city. And why is San Francisco the Oz for drug addicts? You know, Vic, I just want to give you a chance to address that last one. Just that this... It does strike me that particularly among people who are not working directly with communities of people who are struggling with these issues, there's some people who are just like, forget those people. That breaks my heart. It really does. That just just went right to my heart. Um, I have to say, for one thing, you know, I get to... You know, I, I work in this world in which I actually see some of those same people lots of times, like become the people they they were once uh, and the, the kind of people who they they can be their best selves. So I see that all the time. I've been doing this for a long time and I've seen it. I've, I've seen people make such huge changes in their life. So it's really, really sad. Uh, it's sad to say that. And I think it goes back to the whole the whole notion of stigma, it's just heartbreaking. You know, mm-hmm. I think, you know, um, we look at people look at people on the streets who are using drugs and I think they're angry with the, with them and they're angry, you know, instead of being angry at the conditions that brought them there and that helped, that helped create that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think if people walk away with, with anything from this today, I hope it, that we understand that those folks we see on the streets, like there's somebody's, that's somebody's, um, somebody's child, uh, and that where they are today is not necessarily where they're going to be tomorrow, um, and where they're going to be five years from now, as long as we can keep them alive, you know, just, it's really heartbreaking. And, and I understand, I look, I don't, I, I understand, um, there's there, I don't, we're not supporting that people have a a right to be subjected to, to violence. Uh, you know, no, no one supports that. Uh, no kid should be, you know, no, no elder should be afraid to go across the street or be in their neighborhood because somebody's going to hurt them. So there's nobody, nobody's going to make an argument for that. We're just arguing for policies that keep people alive and don't, aren't like over, overly reliant on coercion. 
Um, you know, one of the things I talk about, the, 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 the substance use treatment system um, became so reliant on forcing people into treatment using the criminal justice system, using either drug courts or other forms of coercion, that I think it, it doesn't make for good treatment when for decades people have been forced to come to your program. Now, there are many people who will tell you that their lives were saved because they went to jail. And I don't invalidate those stories at all because that's their experience. But I think when you look at it as a treatment system, you look at a system that didn't have to get really, really innovative and flexible and good at what they did because the alternative for your clients was incarceration. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's problematic you know, just in terms of um, like how we approach our work and how we think about the work. Uh, it curtails creativity. After some of the, uh, the, the law reforms in California, and fewer people were being forced into treatment with drug, drug courts. Well, people stopped going to outpatient treatment. Lots of people all around the state. So you're thinking, oh, is that a problem? Is that a, are, are we? What that problem tells us is that our system wasn't good enough. To... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important point to bring up. Yeah. Let's get to some calls. Let's bring in Frank from San Francisco. Hey, thank you. Uh, 30 plus years of being uh, heroin free. Uh, I got a uh, methadone 21 day program, which I, I finally was able to kick using. Um, but I, I think abstinence is a joke. There is no abstinence. Alcohol Anonymous substitutes coffee for alcohol and the social cohesion. In fact, that social cohesion, the, the, the act of trying to intervene in people's lives is, is, is a great harm reduction in itself. So just having as an addict being separated from society, which is what this addictive drug does, turns you into a zombie. Just having someone express an interest in you is a huge uh, uh, benefit. And so, uh, yeah, I don't believe in abstinence only. I think that's a throwback. It's, it's actually just a it's like a right-wing attempt to funnel money into authoritarian groups. And uh, I think only people who have been addicted should be expressing an opinion on what the treatment programs are. Hey, thank you so much for that perspective, Frank. I want to go to uh, Victoria in Berkeley. Welcome to the show, Victoria. Hi. I um, Thanks for taking my call. So I've agreed with and enjoyed everything that people have shared so far. My husband is an addiction medicine doctor and works in hospital and a lot with people the first day they come into the hospital for treatment. And I myself am a sober 12-step alcoholic and drug addict. And what we see time and time again is that even if there's MAT treatment, there is ne there's just not enough treatment facilities. And if you send someone out for outpatient treatment, uh, I think the drop-off is so huge. And we put so much money into that treatment and the beginning of the journey. And I could just hear my husband every day fighting for a bed in one of the very few treatment programs in the area. And so I just wanted to bring that up about why funding isn't going to uh, – bridge programs and treatment programs because it's a life's journey. And I really like what the previous caller said, which is I do believe in abstinence, but I am addicted to coffee and sugar. And so it's a lifetime journey of um, figuring it out. And I just, 
pray that there's going to be more money funneled into uh, residential or long-term treatment programs. That's just my comment today. Thank you so much, Victoria. Thanks for sharing that with us. And Vitka, um, what do you think about that, the the bridge uh, out of some of these programs into longer-term solutions? Yeah, I'm so glad uh, the caller brought that up. Um, so, you know, I think often people frame this conversation as uh, if you're funding a harm reduction program, why aren't you funding, it, you know, why aren't you funding abstinence only? Uh, it's this sort of we're all fighting for this little slice of the pie when the reality is it's all about improving the health of, and care for people who use drugs and helping move people in a more healthy, positive direction in their life. And I think um, part of the challenge has been uh, for some of the more high intensity services like substance use treatment on an intensive outpatient or residential basis um, are the, um, the crisis in staffing, which I cannot, it is like I have never seen and I've been doing this for a long time. So it's partially it's COVID and kind of the crisis of COVID and staff who've worked through uh, the pandemic and, you know, and kind of stress and trauma of the risk of people leaving treatment, but the inability so it's not just a matter of beds, uh, f- funding, you know, you can have a bed is just a bed if there's no staff. And I think across the field, across the country, but in particular in California, we are facing a crisis in, in inability to attract and retain uh, staff to staff our treatment programs. And so that throttles our ability to take people in. And that's purely a, re- it's kind of purely a result of how treatment programs are funded. Great. I want to add another voice into our conversation. Jen Jeffries is a former IV drug user, currently on methadone, and a medication-assisted treatment coordinator with the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. Welcome, Jen. Hi. Hey, thanks for joining me. Jen, why don't you give us uh, a little bit of your story? Okay. Um, so I started using IV drugs when I was um, 17 and then I went to jail when I was 21 and was offered um, methadone five days after I'd already been detoxing from the heroin which doesn't make much sense because I was already almost through it Um and then, so I kept using drugs after that. Um, it was just kind of something to keep me from not getting sick. Um, and then you, what, what helped you really get back on your feet and kind of, you know, moving in society and the world? I got pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, it was um, having a life inside of me that, that didn't deserve any of the things I was doing to my body. You know, it's my body. That's one thing. A baby, that's another story. Um, So that's what got me back on my feet. But I don't believe in abstinence for everybody. I think it's a part of harm reduction. I don't think that they are separate things. Mm -hmm. Um, Like for me, marijuana and mushrooms help me a lot. Um, but for some people, abstinence does work, but I don't think that they're necessarily two different things. Yeah. Yeah. 
years. Thanks so much for that perspective, Jen. That was uh, Jen Jeffries, former IV drug user, currently on methadone and uh, working as a medication-assisted treatment coordinator with the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Jen. You're welcome. Thank you. We're talking about the future of drug treatment in San Francisco. You just heard from Jen. We also are joined by Keith Humphreys, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford School of Medicine, and Vitka Eisen, president and CEO of HealthRate360, San Francisco's largest drug treatment provider. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Want to bring in uh, another call, Mike from Menlo Park. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hi, everybody. Uh, I just had a quick comment with regards to uh, Dr. Humphrey's intervention uh, having to do with policing. So, as a former drug abuser, now turned psychiatric researcher, I you know there's, I, I see a lot of policy and mention of policing. Um, you know. When, when high-level academics weigh in. And uh, the one thing that I like to point to um, with regards to police is that uh, while they're seen as agents of order, um, the, the, at, at their current state, they currently are actually quite the opposite. They sort of incite low-level social chaos um, because the training currently isn't there. So while the use of policy to remove open air drug markets seems like a you know a good idea in practice, I think uh, leaning on the police sort of has a ways to go, um, and that's my comment. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for that, Mike. And I wanted to get back to that, uh, Keith Humphreys, mm-hmm. which is you know this the so called like Portuguese model sort of reference, right? They that uh, shutting down open air uh, drug markets. But it kind of came as part of a broader package, right? It, Ab- you... Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. What what what's happened in San Francisco is people cite the part of Portugal that they like and don't do the rest. So <laughs> Portugal dramatically expanded services, which is terrific. Um, they also dramatically expanded what are called dissuasion commissions that pressure people into using services. So you know many of the people who are on the street in San Francisco, if they were in Lisbon, would be in front of a commission that was you know, uh, pressuring them to seek treatment. And in San Francisco, a lot of people believe, oh no, in Portugal, it's, there's no coercion. You, know, you use drugs all you want, wherever. And that is just not the way it is. And the second thing is they don't tolerate open-air drug markets. They tolerate drug use. They recognize it's gonna happen, but they think the damage to communities is so great that um, they will not allow those markets to spring up. And, you know, the argument made sometimes is, well, that's not fair to, as I think one caller said, you know, black and brown people. Well, it's mainly black and brown people who live in the neighborhood who are enduring the harm. So if we care about people of all races in our communities, we should be caring about families in the Tenderloin who are trying to raise kids in that environment. So it's really on behalf of them, not in spite of them, that you would close down open air markets. You know, uh, listener Shandi uh, writes, I got clean in San Francisco about 12 years ago. Harm reduction is the official drug policy of San Francisco city and county. It is not a choice or preference of modality. With that being said, there were several abstinence-based options for me at every step, from detox to adult diversion unit to 90-day inpatient to sober living environment to aftercare, therapy, and psychologist. Of course, I took advantage of practically everything that they offered me. But my point is that they offered. 
Uh, Colleen writes, if one of the goals is to reduce violent crime by allowing safe consumption sites, how do we address the violent crimes and property theft that drug users engage in to fund their drug habits? Safe consumption sites will not prevent drug users from engaging in crime to support their habits. Uh, Vidka Eisen, what do you think about that, um, that, that there are these other associated social problems uh, around drug use? Yeah, I think I'm glad, I'm glad the, um, the uh, person wrote in about that. So um, this came up around, we had this conversation when, um, when the uh, Biden administration announced that they would support harm reduction funding, but then kind of walked it back and said they wouldn't support um, using uh, harm reduction dollars to purchase crack, crack, you know, crack pipes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those of us who kind of work in the field said, well, okay, then, so if you're not, if you're, first of all, that's not, it's a health intervention, but if you're not going to support that, that means that somebody has to find the five bucks to, to, um, to pay for the crack pipe. And so, you know, if you want to cut down crime around uh, drugs, then you make sure that the supplies are available for people. You make sure that they have other income supports. And again, you revisit the notion of safe supply. If you have a safer supply, a, a less toxic, uh, regulated supply of drugs, which is used all throughout many places in Europe, if you have a safe supply, then you are closing the you, you're you're cutting off demand to the uh, to the underground illicit drug market. Um, and also, if you have p- places where people can consume drugs safely off the street, then you can say, hey, you, sh- you know what? Why don't you go down the block? Here you are. You're in front of a school, or you're near a park, and would be better if you go down the block. And there's this location here where you can get safe supplies. You can get your, you know, you can get if you have an abscess or sore in your leg, you can get it checked. Uh, you can maybe see a doctor there. You can get some help, uh, and they'll connect you to some care. So I think it's really about enhancing care, making connections, and then moving people towards health, which in, which may for many people will include treatment. You know, the research on the Insight program in Canada found that at least 30% of the people took on other services, which is a safe consumption program in Canada, one of the first in North America. People took on other services. So, you know, it's not, we're not saying that this is the answer and the only thing you should do to, you know, safe drug consumption is the answer uh, to, you know, substance use disorder and all of the problems. But it's a crucial say. piece. Yeah. But it's a piece of it. Yeah. We've been talking about the future of drug treatment in San Francisco with Vitka Eisen, president and CEO of HealthRight360, as well as Keith Humphreys, professor of psychiatry at Stanford School of Medicine. Thank you both so much for joining us. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.